innovative, often duplicated. When enough people get on the trend, I elevate it, make it way harder for them to follow. But I take it hard to swallow like a lozenger lodged in your trachea. Goodness gracious, bruh, I can never make this up. So just take your stuff, rake it up, and take the bus. Never fake the funk, you painted skunks. You played enough, I'm lifting bars to outer space, so the weight is up. Fight. WHUPLP Hillsboro, North Carolina, coming to you live once again from the center of the known world. This is the Cage Side Concussion Cast, your source for the fighting arts in the Carolinas and beyond. I am Jeff Shaw, and I'm flying solo in the studio today, although we'll hear from Trevor Hayes in a moment. He was cornering fighters at an IKF kickboxing event in South Carolina last night. He's going to call in and let us know how that went with all the local fighters on that card. As always, we'll also have all the weekend's news as well as upcoming events. We also may have a surprise guest calling in if our hamster powered studio phone line works. We'll we'll get to that in a second. We're also going to announce the winners of our month-long March Martial Arts Movie Madness Contest, uh, including both the winning movie and the three guys who won uh, the bracket contest, so that'll be exciting. But most important, our featured interview is with Robert Drysdale. Now, Robert Drysdale is the head of Drysdale Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and along with Rodrigo Cavaca, is also the head of the Zenith BJJ Association, which has local affiliates, including Elevate MMA. Now, Robert Drysdale is a UFC veteran and a super accomplished grappler with an ADCC absolute title and a jiu-jitsu world championship to his credit. He's also a really thoughtful and passionate student of the martial arts, and I was happy to learn a self-proclaimed jiu-jitsu nerd. So he has a lot of really interesting things to say about the state of current jiu-jitsu competition and competition teams, about what it's like to work with UFC champion Joanna Yandrychich. I hope I pronounced that right. He he also has some really... um, sort of provocative things to say about Gracie University, which is the online learning uh, facility run by Henry Gracie out of uh, out of California. And all, all that and much more. So I spoke to him after his seminar at Elevate MMA yesterday, and trust me, you don't want to miss that. We'll get that to that in about 10 or 20 minutes. As always, we're coming to you live on 104.7, streaming live at whoopfm, whupfm.org. And as always, we're going to start by summarizing some martial arts news for the weekend. If we missed anything from this weekend, let us know. We're on Twitter and Instagram at CagesideWhoop. You can also shout us out using the, the hashtag CagesideWhoop. Our email is CagesideWhup at gmail.com, and we're on Facebook at CagesideRadio. All of this information is on our show page at whoopfm.org, too. If you miss us, you can always catch the replay at whupfm.org. Org or on iTunes or Stitcher, where you should subscribe, and if you like the show, leave us a review. Trevor also reminds me to say we're on SoundCloud as well. So, uh, those with all the particulars uh, out of the way, let's get to the news. Everyone loves the Jeff Shaw. Everybody oh. does love Jeff Shaw, but... Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's the Cage Side Concussion Cast on WHUPFM.org. One of the things you can do when you're in the studio by yourself is play the most ego-stroking bumper in the world. So forgive me for that, folks. So let's get to the news. So coming up this weekend, or uh, Pro Jitsu is on April 2nd. Now that's a, a pay-per-view jiu-jitsu card that also uh, they, they have professional uh, grappling. And Gibson Saw is the main event. Uh, of that. And, you know, we've talked about this before. Uh, Gibson Saw is one of the most outstanding grapplers uh, 
anywhere, but, all, but specifically in the Carolinas. And if you haven't seen him compete, um, you really don't want to miss that. Um, you can it, YouTube uh, some of Gibson's videos, including his relatively famous win over UFC uh, contender Hector Lombard. But he's just an outstanding grappler, an outstanding competitor, and a really great teacher as well. So we'll be there reporting on the Pro Jitsu card, and so we'll have all the results for you. But know that you can get tickets to watch it live, or you can also watch on a live stream. And that's going to be a really exciting weekend, the weekend of April 2nd, because if you're going to watch on the stream, you can also go to the Andrew Smith seminar uh, the next day, which I'll, I'll talk about in just a second. Or, you know, you can be crazy and drive to both. Either way works. So Pro Jitsu, April 2nd. Don't forget that. Our own particular event that I really want to make sure that uh, that you guys know about is the Concussion Cast Carnival. Now, this is going to be a huge event, and it's going to be May 1st in downtown Durham at Durham Central Park, right where the farmer's market is. We're going to raise funds to try to help Cage Side MMA, who helps a lot of local fighters, helps us out a lot, expand into a new location. And in order to do that, we're going to have a really fun day involving jiu-jitsu super fights, involving free seminars, involving all kinds of carnival-style fun, games like cornhole, and uh, some matches that I'm really excited to announce. We announced... Uh, nearly the full card before. We have the full card now. I'm going to announce some of the matches that we haven't uh, announced just yet, and we'll have a full card poster out next week. First, I got I to uh, deliver some disappointing news, and I know Trevor is listening, so so I wanted to tell him uh, when he couldn't punch me in the face, which is uh, apparently city permits won't let us have a dunk tank. Uh, so we'll think of some alternatives, such as water balloons. Uh, I don't know, water balloons filled with, uh, filled with syrup, something like that. But uh, no dunk tank. It's a bummer. On the other hand, we will still have two delicious food trucks. We will still be serving acai bowls and cold-pressed coffee, thanks to, to Bryce Mahoney and Triangle Beans and Bowls for that. We will still have free worm guard seminar taught by Daniel Frank, a free women's self-defense seminar taught by Seth Champ, Kim Rice, and Shayla Tu. Uh, and so all kinds of really, really fun and exciting stuff for all people who train in the martial arts. And if you're ever interested in getting some of your friends in the martial arts or you just want to have a, a fun day outside, that'll be from noon to 3 on May 1st. Uh, so be sure and tell all your friends. We have a Facebook event that you can share as well. So I just set up the last three matches for the card, and I want to talk about those briefly. Um, so let, let's start with the purple belts. So Andrew Card from Beta Academy is going to drive down and compete against Harold Hubbard from Chapel Hill Gracie Jiu-Jitsu Nogi. Now, a lot of you guys know both of these folks. I think this is going to be a really exciting match, I, I, and I don't know exactly how it's going to go, which is why uh, which is why we make the matches. I also know Harold threatened to oil check me again if I didn't get him on the card, so no need for that, Harold. Another match I'm really excited to announce is our second women's match, which is Mary Holmes, or I should say Pan Am Absolute Champion Mary Holmes, uh, from Chapel Hill Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, against Beta Academy's Lori Porsche. Now, Lori, we had on the show earlier. Lori is one of the organizers of Grapplethon DC. She was on one of the very first concussion casts, and I've always wanted to have her on a Toro Cup card. Um, the next Toro Cup isn't going to be until September, so we didn't want to wait that long. And so Lori and Mary are going to have a really, uh, a really, I mean, a really good grappling match, and I'm excited for Lori to be one of the, the Beta Academy contingent coming down. So thanks to both uh, women for agreeing to that match. I'm, I'm sure that that's going to be super entertaining. And finally, I'm very excited for this because this match was supposed to happen on a Toro Cup, and, but but one of, one of the competitors got injured. Hopefully that doesn't happen again. So Neil Zumbro uh, from Evolution MMA out in Wilmington, who's a very good black belt, won a couple of black belt matches at the Worlds last year, um, is going to compete against Nakapon Pungpan from Beta Academy. And now everybody knows Nakapon. You know, we talk about Nakapon all the time. Outstanding Muay Thai practitioner, outstanding jiu-jitsu competitor. And those guys are going to have a no-gi match that is going to be the co-made event along with Sam Fall Haber and Caitlin Huggins, uh, and so two black belt matches as the main event. I I couldn't be more excited, you guys. And so we'll have a full fight poster out uh, very soon. Please help us out by sharing that.
So remember, Concussion Cast Carnival, May 1st, uh, noon to 3 p.m. Um, please get it on your calendar and, uh, and come out and support local jiu-jitsu. Come out and support local martial arts and come out and, and support Cage Side MMA. I'm excited to see you there. So a couple more news items. If you want to compete yourself, U.S. Grappling Greensboro is April 23rd. I know that registration is open now. That's always a great tournament that's very well attended. So if you want to get some really good competition matches in, if you train jiu-jitsu in the gi or no gi, U.S. Grappling Greensboro, April 23rd. A couple of learning opportunities coming up. I mentioned earlier the Andrew Smith Deep Half Guard Seminar is April 3rd. That's at Triangle Jiu-Jitsu in Durham, North Carolina. Andrew is a tremendous instructor. He's, uh, you know, owns Revolution BJJ up in Richmond, travels around, does seminars. He was one of our most popular interviews as well. So if you listen to that, and if you didn't, you should go back in the archive and listen to it. You know that Andrew is a really thoughtful and cerebral guy about Jiu-Jitsu, about what makes it work, has a lot of experience uh, with numerous positions, but Deep Half is a, a really, really powerful position of his. And so I learn a lot every time I train with Andrew. And so April 3rd, uh, Andrew Smith at Triangle Jiu-Jitsu in Durham, North Carolina. A little bit further out, Hanette Stack, eight-time Jiu-Jitsu world champion, is going to be given a seminar May 14th at Richmond Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Hanette is an awesome instructor. Her, her uh, seminars are always popular and well-attended, so that's something to, uh, something to look forward to as well. And just one more item uh, before we get to uh, before we get to our phone call with Trevor Hayes. So uh, we have a March Martial Arts Movie Madness contest, as you know. Uh, you know they have this basketball thing. I'm not much for the team sports, but uh, I thought that we would blatantly steal that idea. Uh, and so we had a Martial Arts Movie Madness contest where we had listeners suggest their favorite martial arts movies. From that, we had a field of 32. A five-judge panel got our field of 32 down to the final four. And that final four, we had our listeners vote on. The final four was Enter the Dragon, Rocky, Drunken Master 2, and Bloodsport. And due to listener votes, the two upsets that met in the final were Drunken Master 2 and Rocky. And I am pleased to announce that uh, despite my seating at number two, my favorite martial arts movie of all time, Drunken Master 2, won the contest. So for this year at least, the best martial arts movie of all time is Drunken Master 2. A combination of humor, action, Jackie Chan's tremendous choreography, and just good times involving grain alcohol. Drunken Master 2, congratulations. Congratulations as well to the three individuals who won the bracket contest. We have about a dozen people fill out brackets so thanks to everybody who helped out with that and our top three uh taking the bronze medal uh sean mcchesney from revolution bjj who will also be competing on the concussion cast carnival card taking second brad acosta from uh tftc academy who will also be competing on the concussion cast card and taking first place, Casey Bins, uh, who is a friend of mine uh, from Seattle, Washington. All of those guys will win, uh, will win uh, concussion cast shirts, and so I will be sure to get them those. I see the phone is ringing, and I'm hoping it's Trevor. Is this the one and only Trevor Hayes? It is the one and only Trevor Hayes. How are you today, Mr. Shaw? I'm living the dream, buddy, and and I assume, and it seems like some of your fighters are also living the dream. Am I correct? Right. They are. I was very happy with those guys. Um, I cannot take, uh, I will go and say right now, I can't take full responsibility. Um, Evan and Jason are from a, uh, a friend where they're from a gym where I'm good friends, the Muay Thai coach. And um, they came to me the past, well, really for their training camp for this fight and uh, just working on stuff uh, of working the Muay Thai. And uh, it paid off dividends. I told them just believe in the drills, go out there, do work, have fun. And, uh, I'm here because I know you guys will win. And they did it, and I couldn't be happier for them. So this was an IKF card, correct? Yes, sir. And there were two fights. So Evan Daniel won in the second round via TKO via knees. Is that right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And uh, can you talk us through that finish, how that happened? Absolutely. Um, 
as I told Evan, um, you know, like, hey, these guys, you're you're fighting in these guys' backyards. They're going to come out at you uh, heavy and hard. Don't be an alpha. Don't try to brawl back with these guys. Stay tight. Turn down the middle. Keep your range. Attack the body. When they brawl, you know the clinch entry. You know how to work your long knees. They fall. And that was it. Um, Daniel, uh, or uh, Evan, he, he had missed the first round. He kind of got in a bit of a brawl at first. and um, But then he found out that, hey, he was tying up. The knees were working. Um, I don't like to have guys sit down between rounds. Um, when you are standing up and you can look across at your opponent and they're sitting down and you see them breathing heavy, and you have them look at them and let them know, hey, that guy's breathing heavy. You're getting right back to work on that body. Those guys just go, oh, damn. I mean, oh, dang, this is really happening. Uh, and, um, that's, <laughs> oh, heck, yeah. Um, and uh, that, that's just what happens, you know. He stuck with the game plan. He worked that body. He tied back up with him and just fired great long knees down the middle. And um, the ref actually stopped the fight when he heard the guy's ribs crunch a little bit, and the guy just dropped, and the ref waved it off. Because he actually got uh, – Evan actually knocked him down in the first round with the knees. And then um, there's usually a three knockdown. They stopped the fight. But um, the ref just saw, like, this guy just kind of just went down hard, clutching his belly, and he heard the ribs, and it was over. Speaking of someone whose ribs uh, have made that crunching sound a few times, that's not a sound you want to hear. No, it's not. It's Yeah. If, if you're the guy cornering against the guy, then it's great. But if you, it, it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> so what about the other fight? Were knees the story of that fight as well? Uh, yes, it was. It was, once again, um, controlling range. Uh, I told him, hey, it, it's the same thing. They both fought the local guys. And uh, like, uh, they, they got into a few wild exchanges. Um, Jason, he just he stayed tight, returned down the middle, worked his range. Uh, he southpaw, had some great attacks on the inside of the lead leg. And... Um, the knees, the knees did the trick again, man. It is that it is that same recipe? When these guys brawl, you stay tight, you work the clinch entry, uh, you return those knees, and you let the drills do the work for you. It's always nice to see a plan come together, right, Hannibal? <laughs> we are the A team. <laughs> Love it when <laughs> a maybe when I open the gym, it'll be A team Muay Thai or something like that. I think that has a good ring to it. I'll, I'll do you a cool Photoshop for your logo. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, but other than that, it was an outstanding show. Um, I couldn't be happier to see uh, kickboxing back on the rise in, in the Carolinas. Um, it was hosted by Jerome Robinson of Jerome Robinson uh, Martial Arts in the Night. Um, also by Johnny Davis with the IKF. Um, it, it was just a great, great show. And they're going to do it regularly, and I can't wait to go back down there. Awesome. And I mean, I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but there's another uh, there's another kickboxing show happening locally as well, and I think they have a date for that now, right? Is it the week of Is it the weekend of May 14th? It is May 14th. That's correct. It will be at the Dorton Arena in Raleigh, and I will be out there. I'm going to have uh, I want to say maybe four or five guys I'm cornering on that show, so it'll be a busy day for me. Sweet, and I will be out there too, taking sound and maybe interviewing guys. So the concussion cast will definitely represent. Like you said, Trevor, it's nice to see kickboxing once again on the rise locally. Yeah, I mean kickboxing. Um, like a lot of the jiu-jitsu guys know, like North Carolina has a great jiu-jitsu scene. But um, man, twenty years ago, uh, North Carolina had a great kickboxing scene. Like there are kickboxing matches held every weekend. But um, now it looks like finally that kickboxing is kind of kind of making a comeback. Mm-hmm. So we're happy to see that. Most definitely, most definitely. Anything, anything else you want to leave the listeners with? Uh, no, that's it. Just once again, I'm really proud with uh, Evan Daniel and uh, and Jason Jordan. Um, couldn't be happier with those guys. 
they just they did everything that I told them to, and it, it paid off dividends. And I could not be happier with the guys. And it was a very happy uh, coaching moment in my young coaching career. <laughs> so. Evan Daniel and Jason Jordan, both winners by Viennese, coached by Trevor Hayes in a fetching American flag motif, which you can see on our Facebook you know, page. No, I think, I, I really think, yeah, you did put up that picture. Um, I think the uh, the outfit kind of had everybody a little freaked out. They're like, whoa, <laughs> these guys mean business. Psychological warfare is at least a third of the battle. Oh, at least, yeah. All right, man. Well, thank you very much for calling in. He's Trevor Hayes, ladies and gentlemen. He will be back in the studio with us next Sunday. Take care, buddy. Yes, I will. All right. See you soon, buddy. Bye. All right, folks. Well, that was uh, it. Was good. To, it was always good to get uh, to get Trevor uh, calling. We, we, he's usually in the studio with us, obviously. But driving back and forth from South Carolina is a big ask. So, uh, but it's great that the two local guys both both won last night, and we had another local guy win last night as well, making his MMA debut. And we're going to have a special guest calling in right now if this works, and hopefully, hopefully, we have James Quigg on the line to talk to us about a local fighter making his pro debut. James, are you on the line? Yeah, I am, Jeff. Awesome, awesome. It is so good to have you in the studio. If you haven't listened to our interview with James Quigg, who is a pro MMA fighter himself at a Team Rock, go back and listen to that in the archive. It's available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Uh, and so I really enjoyed that interview as well. And it was sort of a last-minute thing, but one of James's teammates made his pro MMA debut, and I thought it would be helpful to have you break that down for us. Well, um, so yeah, Damon Blackshear fought with me on that February 20th card, um, and... You know, something about the dominant way that he he won that decision, and then he'd been training with me for my camp. Um, he just decided that he wanted to go pro. So he took he took this fight just a month later that was going to be his pro debut. Um, and, you know, we, we picked who we thought was going to be the toughest opponent for him because, you know, we always want to continue to grow. And... We made the right pick with Kenny Hill. He was a tough opponent, strong, a good, solid wrestler, but with DeMond's speed and footwork, it helped him um, be able to respond to those takedown attempts. And he got great clinch position, really let the knees go. Knees were kind of a story of this fight, just like Trevor's uh, kickboxing fights. Um, and as it, as it went on, it gave... Demond the opportunity to get some really solid takedown attempts. That the second takedown, he he had turned off the cage, picked the dude up in the open, up above his head, and spiked him hard. And with all those knees to the body leading up to that, it had just taken the fight out of him. And that it turned into kind of a grappling match because Kenny Hill's a really solid wrestler, has good solid ground position. So Demond didn't get the chance to let the ground and pound go. But he went out to north-south, started to go for the north-south Kimura, didn't get it, sat back for the arm bar. Kenny defended, so he looked for the bicep cutter, and when Kenny rolled up, it turned into a triangle. Um, now that night... And he finished that triangle mm -hmm. choke in the second round. He won by triangle choke in the second round, is that right? That is correct. Triangle choke in the second round. Um, you know, that night, it had... We kind of had the benefit that they had a, a playback video of other fights earlier in the night because there was one fighter who almost who darn near won that fight through and won the fight because of his ability to lift and slam a guy who was trying to triangle him. So 
Daman had the perfect answer for those lifts by sitting, collapsing, or uh, taking that triangle hard, keeping that arm on the shin while he's tightening it up, and hooking the leg so the guy couldn't posture and lift him. Um, and I love, eventually... I love... Yeah, I love this description. Sorry to, to to cut you off in a sec, but I love. I, I want to make sure some of the listeners that aren't as is into the, the martial arts technique get a visual of this. Well, I love James's description because this is a chain of attacks that Damon is doing. Where in north south, you know, Damon is on top, attacking a Kimura, a shoulder lock, getting on, you know, getting on the arm. Transitions there to attack the arm with an arm lock. When the arm lock fails, he tries a bicep cutter, which is a compression lock technique, and then that turns into a triangle choke. Forgive me if, if I missed that, but uh, if I missed anything there, but I just love the, the visualization of those beautiful transitions. Yeah, it, it was one of those things where, you know, you see him transition, you know, first head's one, you know, his head's one way, the opponent's head's the other, they're chest to chest, then he, and he's starting to lift that arm up as the guy rolls, that lets Damon sit towards that back and sit back with that arm, and when Kenny initially starts to roll up, he can put that shin across that forearm to stop the roll up and attack that arm. And then when he, you know, that Kenny's a powerful, athletic opponent, so when he continued to sit up through that shin, he just moved that shin from the forearm over to the head to lock in that triangle and finish it more like a triangle from guard. Mm. Were there any moments of adversity for Damon in the fight that he had to push through? I know a lot of times guys making their pro MMA debut, there's an adrenaline dump or there's some kind. I know he's has experience, but was there any adversity he had to push through, or was it a pretty dominant performance? Um, it's one of those things. Damon's a pretty poker face fighter, so even if you've got him in a bad spot, you don't necessarily know it. Um, but, you know, again, he was facing someone we had picked because we wanted to challenge them on. We wanted it to be one of his, you know, we wanted one of the tougher opponents for him. And the forward movement that he, that Kenny Hill was able to bring was something that really challenged, really challenged him on. But as he, as he got more comfortable in the cage and he started to, to get control of the timing, um, it, you know, just that initial hesitation, that initial trying to get a feel for his opponent, and from there, as he relaxed, it just kept going. And it just, you know, Damon just kept getting more and more comfortable, kept finding his places, and it made it really easy, you know, with his keeping that, that jab in the face and that footwork fluid, it meant that every time that um, his opponent would try to close the distance, he'd be able to clinch on his terms because he was, he was ready for it. He'd read the timing. I know you guys do a lot of drills that emphasize that sort of footwork and timing, and so uh, you know it seems like that would uh, really prepare Demond for a situation like this. Well, it, it's definitely one of those things where um, those, are, those are attributes that he already has. So in this, for this particular... Um, in this particular case, it's less about teaching Damon about timing and footwork and more just preparing him for for a, an opponent who's going to be that stubborn and move forward that much. What do you think the next steps are for Damon in terms of his evolution as a fighter, both in terms of uh, continuing to develop his skills and what, what the next step is competitively for him? Well, I mean... He and I are pretty much in the same spot now. We made our pro debuts within a month of each other. Each of us has different holes in our game, but 
you know, we want to continue refining what it is that we do well. In his case, you know, knowing when to use that speed, those good, solid, open mat shots, um, and that quick, precise uh, striking that he does. And his, his standing clinch is really a terrible place to be if you're not transitioning out of it. Um, so we continue to build on those, close any holes that we identify, and to to be honest, there aren't a whole lot of places that I can exploit them on. Um, so I don't. But we're continuing to work, continuing to to develop those things, and then look for progressively better opponents, progressively better shows, bigger shows, and just work on getting our names out there. I think one of the the things that happens sometimes um, is we've got to recognize that as fighters and as professional fighters in this MMA world nowadays, it's not it's not good enough just to be the best fighter in the land. Um, you're, you're combat sports entertainers. At least that's what it said on my contract. So we've got to do things. We've got to recognize that we have to entertain people both out of the cage and in the cage because we've got to help that promote we've got to make it easier easy for that promoter to sell tickets and sell tickets ourselves oh yeah you know doing things but go ahead sorry i was gonna say doing things between fights to to keep our names out there whether it's doing jujitsu tournaments or just um going out and and representing different you know getting having sponsors that we represent in public events the sort of things that make us a part of that community and help build build fan bases. Yeah, it's really interesting. The econo- when we have you in the studio again, and sometime if you and Damon are up here training again, I'd love to get you both back in the studio to talk about the economics of it or the business side of it is really fascinating because what you said at the beginning of, of your comments is really true. You know, uh, skills and ability are necessary but not sufficient. Like, obviously, everybody at the pro level has has skills, but just because you're the best the best technical guy, the best athlete, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be the most successful pro fighter. The, the promotion aspect mm-hmm. is, a, is a really critical part of it. So before I let you go, and I, I want to talk about what's next for James Quigg. Do you have another fight set up, or are you look are you working on that? Um, we're working on it right now. We don't have one, one set up. Um, but... You know, obviously, I'm I'm out there. I'm ready to to entertain good offers. I just like I said for Demond, I want to continue fighting better guys and work my way up through this game. Um, and other than that, it, it's training. Um, I don't know if you you saw my post, but I'm working on bringing Sanford back or MMA back to Sanford mm-hmm. uh, with a six week course that's coming up here for because. I say bring MMA back to Sanford because once upon a time there was a great MMA gym right here in Sanford called Ring Skills, and then it had to close down because of some struggles. But there are still people in the in this area who've trained, and so we want to find those people and bring that bring that sport, build that sport up here. Um, I'll con- I'm continuing to train at Team Rock and. You know, I'm also working on that that course here in in the Sanford area. Exciting stuff, and I'll, I'll I'll find that post and try and share it as well from the Concussion Cast page. Well, James, thanks so much for calling in. Uh, he's James Quigg, professional MMA fighter from Team Rock. His teammate from Team Rock, Damon Blackshear, just won his professional debut, making both of those guys one and zero. We always love to talk to you, James, and best of luck with everything in the future.
Thanks for having me, Jeff. I mean. Hashtag undefeated. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully, hopefully for a long time soon. All right. Take we'll care. Keep, we're going to work on keeping it that way. <laughs> Best of luck. Bye. Jiu-Jitsu is, a, is like the gentle art, but I'm not gentle. It's the Cage Side Concussion Cast on WHUPFM.org. So thanks to James Quigg and to Trevor Hayes for calling in. It's always nice to get the uh, the, the firsthand accounts of those things for the local fighters. And so when Trevor, uh, you know, Trevor was obviously at those fights, cornering those guys, he could give us a live report. James was in DeMond's corner as well. So it's really, really appreciate those guys calling in. And congratulations uh, to Evan Daniel, Jason Jordan, and DeMond Blackshear on their wins last night. It's always nice to see local guys doing well. So we're going to get right into our featured interview. Uh, there are a lot of reasons that I was excited to interview Robert Drysdale. Obviously, because he's a supremely accomplished martial artist in both jiu-jitsu and MMA. But this is also someone who has experienced all sides of the martial arts. Uh, he started as a kid and has sort of grown up with it. And he's also been a competitor, a coach, a school owner, and a network owner. Um, he's also a history buff. He majored in that subject in college. And so he has a lot of interesting things to say about jiu-jitsu history, as well as the present state of the competition game and competition teams. So hopefully I've whetted your appetite enough to hear this interview because there are lots of gems here that you won't want to miss, I don't think. I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did conducting it. So without further ado, here's Robert Drysdale. So of all the teams that you've trained with throughout your career, what area would you say each of them excelled in the most? Uh, well, I started a uh, small gym in Brazil in the city of Itu, Sao Paulo. And, you know, it wasn't a competitive team. We only trained three times a week. But that was the very first gym I trained in. And then later I moved to the JSEC gym in Las Vegas, Novo Neon affiliate back in 99, 2000. And those guys were a little more competition oriented. Jiu-jitsu they had was a little more sophisticated. It's ironic because I left Brazil for Las Vegas in 99 and I found more sophisticated jiu-jitsu in Las Vegas than I did in Brazil. It's very ironic, but it's true. And, uh, and it was more competition oriented. I had very good instructors there, um, John Lewis, Gustavo Dantas, and my, my teacher, Steve Da Silva. And uh, it, was, it was good. And I moved back to Brazil. I went to train a, t- a team called Maromba. And Maromba was really excellent for me because, like, our coach, Paulo Strecker, he made us compete every—I mean, we competed, like, almost every weekend, man. Like, every, if not every weekend, every other weekend. So that really put the—gave me the competition bug. I think there was one year. It might have been 2001. I think 31 tournaments in one year. You know, so there's plenty of competition, and uh, I really enjoyed that. Uh, then later I started training with— uh, Terere, Leo Vieira, Damian Maia, Eduardo Tellis, and those guys. And there I really, I think that's when I, my game really went to the next level. Because up to then I was a good purple belt. You know, I can give black belts a hard time and won the world as a purple. But I think that what took my game to the next level was training with people that could consistently beat me on the mats. And I'm one of those guys that if someone's beating, on the, beating me on the mats, I'm not going to stop until I'm beating them. Like, it's, I, I go home and I torture myself for hours on end. Like, if someone passes my guard or finishes me, it's not something I let go. I hold on to it and I keep thinking about it. What did I do wrong? And I can't. I hate the fact that there's someone better than me on the mats. And, you know, I think that being around people that at that time were way better than me, guys like Tidane, Leo Vieira, and Damian Maia, they were so much better than me. 
it really gave me the drive to like, I'm not stopping until I can beat every single one of them. Like it has to be, I could not accept the fact that they could beat me on the mats. And that, that went on for a while. And I learned so much from them because their level was so high and they were so different in so many different ways. Like they, their skills they had, their abilities were not identical. So I, I was able really to, to learn a lot during that time. And it was great training. Like later we had Lucas Lecce, Andre Galvão, and like, I mean, the list goes on, Comprito. Like the, we had some of the best grapplers in the, in the world training all, all together that, uh, uh, around that time. And uh, that's what I picked up from them. And then, you know, things went in a different direction. I, you know, opened my own gym. And now I, I, try to, I try to share with my students the experiences I had with all these gyms. And all of them had, all of them were great for different reasons. Um, I try to, you know, pick the best out of all of them and deliver it to my students. I want to talk to you a little bit about both your experience as a competitor and your experience as a coach. And so, you know, you've accomplished a lot competitively in both jiu-jitsu and MMA. And I'm wondering what goals are left for you as, as a competitor? Do you still set those types of goals? And how do you, how do you go about setting goals? Um, it's a tough question, man, because as much as I, you know, I, I see guys winning today and I go like, oh, man, I wish I could beat that guy, win that tournament. But at the same time, I feel like I won everything I wanted to win. Like the things that were important to me, I won, you know. And to me, jiu-jitsu was never about, oh, I got to get some glory or some money out of this. It was always about I needed to prove to myself that I could do it. Fighting was something that terrified me as a child, like a terrified. I got, I mean, people talk about bullying. I'm like, you got no idea what it's like to be a white American kid in Brazil. <laughs> you have no idea. You don't, you don't know what bullying is, man. Like, so to me, it was something, it was like an obstacle and it was like a mental challenge. And I feel like I overcame that to a large extent. Like I never expected, I accomplished way more than I ever expected of myself. If you knew me when I was 15, I was a very different person, you know? So when I look back and I remember how I was and where I'm at today, I'm like, how did I even make it this far? Like it's, but you know, it was, it was, it, I mean, it's, it's a fun journey. and I loved every second of it. You know, I, I, I feel like I could go back and maybe win the world championships again and win a second time as a black belt or a third time. And, I mean, I feel like I won it once. I lost two finals to Roger Gracie when he was in his prime. I made it to the final of the World Championships three years in a row. I mean, to me, that's an accomplishment in itself, you know. Yeah, I didn't win those extra two titles I would like to have, but I was very close, and I lost to the, arguably the best guy of all time. So, you know, I, I, I feel like I did that. I won ADCC Open, which to me is like the biggest title you can win Nogi, and it probably will be for a long time to come. I think it, ADCC will continue to be the most significant grappling tournament that's ever existed. And I won the absolute. So I feel like I did that as well. Um, MMA was a huge mental challenge for me. And I feel that I fought. I, you know, um, I'm still active. I'm still, I'm ready to fight. I don't have a contract. I don't have to deal with anyone, but I'm still open to fight. I still feel, I never feel better, actually. I feel, I mean, I'm 34 now, but I actually feel way better than I did 10 years ago, you know, and not maybe not physically, but technically I'm still improving. So I feel like because it was such a challenge, the fact that I have that I had the courage to step in a cage was some and relax too. Like it was a process. It was something that the idea would terrify me. And I remember thinking, like you know, walking in the cage the last few fights and going, "Man, I'm ready for this. Like I, this is my element. Like I was very comfortable. So I feel like I've accomplished that. I've conquered that fear as well. So to me, that was an accomplishment in itself. You know, winning was it was like it was just like being able to do it was an accomplishment in itself. And I don't feel like I have anything to prove to anyone other than to myself that I can do it. And that's what I have been doing. Of course, you know, I didn't make it to the, the top in MMA, but I can still do it. And I feel that I am qualified to do it, given that 
I've been training with UFC champions for the last seven, eight years now in Vegas. I like some of the, I've rolled with pretty much everyone. I've sparred with pretty much everyone, and I don't feel I'm behind. You know, it's just a matter of doing it. But like, so th there's that challenge as well. It's something I I, I love. I love the 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 the, 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 the MMA side of, the, of of martial arts. Like the the the, it's very challenging. It's very intellectually engaging to me, and that's why I like it. But. I don't know, man. Like I think that as I as I one day I will stop and I'll, I'll look for different challenges and I, you know, some of these challenges might be as a coach, um, but I think I I can see myself going different directions too and doing different things. Like I don't know if I if I can be just a guy who just teaches jujitsu forever. Like I don't know if I can be 45 years old not actively competitive and going. Do I want to just be the coach? I if I can be that. I don't know. I don't know. I'll, I'll cross that bridge when I get to it. Right now, I focus. I'm on mats every day if not twice a day, at least once a day. I'm very active as an athlete, so I don't think about that too much, but I could see myself in the future one day going in a completely different direction. So you train regularly with UFC champions, and you're also the coach of one, Joanna Yusrychik, whose name I definitely butchered, but I guess everybody does. And you mentioned that Joanna comes to, to Las Vegas to train with you. I'm wondering what that experience is like for you as a coach, in addition to you know, serving as her grappling coach on the Ultimate Fighter series. Uh, you know, Joanna's awesome. I'm actually not her coach. I'd be unfair to say that. I Her jiu-jitsu coach is a, a Polish guy called Simon. Simon is a very good friend of mine. I've known him for many years. And I've been going to Poland since 2006, I believe. And I've known him probably that long. And he's one of my black belts in Poland. So that's that's the connection there. And we're very good friends. We've got a very good relationship. They have an amazing camp in Poland. I have very, you know, I have a... Um, I really relate to the Polish people in a lot of ways, you know, and they're very serious about jiu-jitsu, and I like that about them. And Joanna's just one of those amazing athletes. You know, I had the privilege to, to, to be able to help a little bit and assistant coach on the, uh, in the season 23 of The Ultimate Fighter. And uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say I'm her coach, but, like, I think, you know, we're good friends. She trains in Vegas whenever she's here. She gets along with people at the gym, and she's just someone I like. I, I like her work ethic. She's very talented, very serious about it, and I like that about her. Like, I see all the qualities I enjoy seeing in a fighter in her. You know, sometimes you see qualities that the traits that you don't like on someone, they're successful, and like, okay, you're good, but there's that. You know, Joanna's just like a well-rounded person, just an overall good human being. Like, she's a good person. Like, she's like one kind of person that if, you know, if I, if she weren't UFC champion, I still want to be friends with her. Like, the fact that she's a UFC champion doesn't, you know, doesn't do anything for her. Like she's an amazing person with regardless of her skills. Yeah. Yeah, everybody knows her for her kickboxing skills, which are considerable, but it sounds like her grappling chops are, are good as well. Like, uh, what would you say about that? They've gotten, her, her grappling skills have gotten a lot better. I know this because she's been coming to the gym for like two, three years now, and I've seen her progress. She'll come at least once a year, and big difference, big difference. She's definitely stepped it up, and before she would avoid the ground, now I can see her probably winning fights on the ground. It's gotten to the point where she's comfortable enough. Like, if an opponent sleeps on her, I can see them getting taken down and submitted by her. I mean, clearly not as good as her striking. She's a world-class Muay Thai fighter, but I can see her winning on the ground. So let's talk about Zenith BJJ uh, and, and your goals for, for the team overall. First of all, I don't, I don't know this. How did you come up with the name Zenith BJJ? Or how, what's the origin of that? Uh, well... I mean, when I left, uh, I mean, I left Braza, really. When Jack Braza split into Braza, Checkmat, and Atos, you know, split in three different directions. I I saw the same problems that I was seeing in Braza at the time with these these other teams. I'm like, you know, like, I love these guys, and they're all my brothers, and I have a very good relationship with everyone at Atos and Checkmat and Braza. 
but I just wasn't happy with, I just wanted to do my own thing. He's like, you know what, man, I just, I know I've seen this move before. I know what's going to happen. I'm just going to go do my own thing. So I started dry Zo Jiu Jitsu in Las Vegas and, and it grew into an association, you know, and it became a, had a life of its own. It wasn't just a gym. It started, you know, it became a team. And, um, and Kavaka at the time was a very good friend of mine. He stayed with Czech Matt and he was, you know, one of the main leaders of Checkmat for many years. And he approached me after a few years and he was like, Rob, I'm not happy for the same reasons that, you know, so you decided to leave. I'm, I'm thinking about leaving as well. And they're not personal. They're just like more professional differences, you know, and, and they're all good guys, man. I have a lot of, I really like the guys from like Leo's like one of my favorite people in the world, man. Leo Vieira is an amazing human being and instructor. And I love all those guys like Lucas and Lapello, like brothers to me. But you know, we just professionally we went in different directions. And me and Kavaka spoke and was like, why don't we do something together? You know, and we had a lot of the similar, we had a similar vision. So about two years ago, we decided to team up and, and, you know, start a team. We set on the name Zenith because I wanted to have, it, so it had to be a strong name that, you know, something that, you know, mentioned, it related to being on top or being a winner. And that's where, that's where Zenith came about. Originally, you know, we came up with a logo. It's funny because we had the letter Z in our head. And, you know, and Kavaka said Zion. And I'm like, that's such a politically loaded term. Like, even in Brazil, people don't get it. Like, they don't get it. And, like, trying to explain, like, dude, this you cannot use. It's, it's just too loaded. And so, but we had a logo with the Z, and we liked the logo. So I get like, how about Zenith? And Zenith is even better. Like, oh, and we immediately both liked it, and that was it. Do you guys set competition goals for your team? I mean, obviously you have goals for your school and your association, but do you think in terms of like sport jiu-jitsu championships or there are other ways that you set goals and, and whatever it is, what, what are those goals that you have for your students? Well, obviously to continue to grow the association and do, you know, better in every tournament. Like an interesting feature of jiu-jitsu now is that it's, it, it is amateur in the sense where no one's getting paid to compete, but it's become professional as in the sense where the people who are winning are doing this exclusively like i just had a chat with someone a second ago to rob what does it take to be to go to the very top and first thing i said is i mean having parents to support you <laughs> you know which is like by the way the biggest advantage brazilians have that people are like why is guys in brazil in brazil so good at jiu-jitsu and is it because they train more and then there are some training differences you know like some but the main the main one is a cultural difference in brazil if you're 27 and you live with your mom and she pays all your bills and you don't have a job and you don't go to school and all you do is train that's completely normal it's completely acceptable. Like here, you're a loser if you do that. You're not going to get a girlfriend if you live with your mom at 27. You don't have a job. And you're not looking for one. Whereas in Brazil, that's completely acceptable. So, you know, and I, I, have no, I have no shame when I say this. I lived with my mom till I was 26, 25, you know, and, and she was very supportive of my career. My, you know, and she was like, no, if you love this and you're, you know, you really want to do this for a living, I'll support you. So that, that was my... That was my advantage. I, you know, it, it, it is a fruit of privilege when you think about it. I wasn't wealthy in Brazil in any way. In fact, I grew up in what you would call a ghetto in Brazil. But, I mean, at least for the area I lived in, it, was, it wasn't a nice area. But it was privilege in the sense where I had someone who supported me and said, no, you can live with me and I'll, and I'll help you. And, and that would, it, made, it made it a lot easier for me. But that's a huge advantage, a huge advantage when you think about it. Yeah, so we, we obviously we want to grow the team and have more competitors but, um, you know, it's getting difficult now because the people who are winning are people who don't have a life, man. Like, outside jiu it's true. Like, if you go to the adult division, no one is placing the adult division at the world that is working. 100% of them live in the gym or in a house right by the gym. And even, even Americans now, they're starting to live that Brazilian lifestyle of not working, not going to school, and having rich parents that sponsor your life or... 
you know, or you just, maybe you have a sponsor, you get by, you live here, you live there, but like they're living what they call the jiu-jitsu lifestyle, where you're basically a jiu-jitsu bum and all you do is train. And yes, if you do that, chances are you're going to get really good. If you're 20, you got nothing else to worry about. And it's difficult because how do, how is it that someone with a family, kids and a job or going to school full time competes with that? So, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a tough one, but it's becoming very much like other professional sports where you either do this for a living or you don't. You don't, you, don't, you, don't, you don't stand a chance. Um, and finding something like that is, is, is I have, having, being competitive unless you have people who don't, who don't do anything but training is very difficult. So you're like, you know what, I'm going to start doing what some of these guys do. We're going to get a fighter house. We're going to have some people training full time. And, and so that's what I just started doing. And we have a fighter house now. And we have people that want to train full time, come to Vegas. And you don't have to worry about anything except showing up at the gym. And uh, I think that's the that's the trend. I think that's gonna. It's actually it's getting to the point where some of the bigger teams. This is happening a lot. This used to be unethical. Now it's become widespread behavior. So if you're in a big team, right, and you want to keep your team strong for future generations, what you do is you find a really good blue belt that's 16 years old from another team, and you bring him over. You invite him over. You're a big name. He recognizes you, so they get intimidated. Like, oh wow, this guy's inviting me over. And you leave your current gym to go live with these guys. It's almost like there's a bidding war going on between the big teams that. What they want is they, they, they're, they're just straight out stealing students, and they're going for the talented ones. We just lost two 16-year-old amazing, talented world champions um, to another gym. I'm not going to mention which gym, but pretty much it got co-opted into switching gyms because they offered them a place to stay, food, and then it's, it's a bidding war in the sense where I'll give you supplements. Oh, and I'll give you a car to drive. And like it's almost like we're fighting over – this happens in professional sports. Like European clubs will go to Brazil to look for eight – like the 13-year-old soccer players and hire them when they're 13 so they can play professionally in Europe when they're 18. You know, and it's, I think it's going to become like that. People are scouting people younger and younger now going after 15, 16-year-olds, trying to bring them to their bigger teams so they have uh, – it's, I mean, it's, it's prestige, right? Like they want their teams to be victorious and like they're bringing them to the bigger teams in order to secure your place in, in, with the big dogs in future generations. And I'm seeing that happen more and more. It used to be completely unethical to try to steal students like that. Now it's just, it's, it's every man for himself. <laughs> so Alianza is one of the biggest teams out there, and they've won the team title at the Mundials for several years running. Is there a team out there that you see on the horizon that could challenge them, or who do you think has the best chance to win the Team World Championship that's not an Alianza team? I think, I mean, Cicero Costa's team is the one that impresses me the most because I think there's last year at the Worlds, they came over like 24 athletes and they took second. You know, and you know, Baja Gracie has like 200 people. So for them to take second with like 20-some people is very, very impressive. Um, so by far the team that impresses me the most is Ciceros. Um, I think if Baja Gracie had put everyone in their A team, like they would win. I, th- I suspect they split the team on, perfect, on purpose because, you know, owner of Baja Gracie is the owner of IBJJF. So it doesn't look good if the owner of the event wins the event. So I suspect they do that on purpose, like they split the team, because they have far more competitors than everyone else. Baja Gracie by far has more schools, way more than Alliance. Uh, I think I've seen Autos get close to Alliance, but I think, I think it's fair to say that those are the biggest ones right now. They have most amount of schools, best competitors out there. You know, we see some other teams closing in, like Braza CTA closing in. But Ribeiro Jiu-Jitsu does really well, especially in the Masters divisions. Um, I don't know, man. But like, like I said, like... A lot of these teams, they're doing exactly that, man. It's become too hard to breed talent in your gym. It's easier to go after talent once you see it. You spot it somewhere else. 
And that's what I think that's the direction Jesus is taking. And a lot of these teams are doing exactly that, you know, because they, like I said, it's become no man's land. <laughs> Another contemporary issue that's been another sort of jujitsu controversy that's come up recently is Gracie University and some of the practices. And you recently wrote an open letter to Henry Gracie, where you said money and popularity seem to have kidnapped the essence of everything jujitsu stands for: humility and dedication. And uh, what what did you mean by that? I, I think that the, the lessons jujitsu teaches go well beyond arm bars and sweeps. I think initially everyone who joins a gym. Their immediate, what makes them walk through the door is like, oh, I don't want to get beat up on the streets and need to learn how to defend myself. So the self-defense aspect draws people in, right? It doesn't give them to stay. Eventually, that's not enough. I think the social and the technical aspect of jiu-jitsu will get them to stay. I have my friends here. This is my second family. I love the jiu-jitsu lifestyle. This is fun. I learned that arm bar. I hit it the other day. That sweep was amazing. I can do it now. But I think ultimately the, the, the main lesson that jiu-jitsu teaches is one that is one of humility. You get beat every day. There's always someone better than you. You're never done learning. And these lessons are, to me, are more valuable than arm bars. Like, and someone, I just this month has been 18 years since I've been trained jiu-jitsu for 18 years now. And I think, I can, I can say that these are the most important lessons. And it sounds cliche, you know, but it really, they really are more important. They're, they're moral lessons and they have to do with, you know, they have to do with you as a human being. They have to do with making you a better person, not only physically, but you know, it's just being just being the, the, the a better version of yourself every day. And this is done through hard work. I don't believe you can better yourself through watching videos on the internet. I don't believe you can better yourself by, you know, I don't know, just sitting at home comfortably reading on jujitsu or talking about jujitsu. Jujitsu has to ex- be experienced you know, firsthand. And, and this is one reason why we love it because it's, it's always, there's an element of reality to it that you're getting beat. Okay, it's not a real fight where people are punching you in the face, but it's, you are getting beat. And there's something, there's something to be learned there. You're on the mats every day and you learn these lessons that they, they you, you, people rank you based not only on your technique, but these lessons and humility is one of them, dedication and discipline and character. These are all lessons that these are all things that will get better the longer you train jiu-jitsu. And you don't learn them outside the gym. That's the problem. This is my issue with the Grace University is that it does make a mockery of jiu-jitsu. It does make a mockery of everything jiu-jitsu stands for. Now, I understand why Henner does it. I understand why he wants to make money. He's a businessman. He's not a, he's not a jiu-jitsu practitioner in the sense where, I mean, he's never a competitor. Yeah, he's a black belt. But, I mean, no one knows anything about his skills. You know, we don't know where... Because that's not his background. His background is business. He's a businessman. He's a very good businessman. Sure, he's making a lot of money from Grace University. I mean, but I mean, is that is that is that where we're going to go? Is that what it's about? Is that the is that the essence of jiu-jitsu? Is that what Helio and Carlos and other people who were very influential in the development of jiu-jitsu in Brazil had in mind when they were spreading jiu-jitsu around the world? Is that what they had? Just making money. I think money is an element. I'm not going to be a hypocrite. I'm a businessman too. I make money. I like making money from jiu-jitsu. I just taught a seminar. I don't teach it for free. You know, but if I told you when I go to bed every night, what I'm thinking about is how can I make more money from jujitsu? If I said that, I'd be lying. Uh, when I when I lay my head in the pillow every night, what I'm thinking about is different ways of onboarding people. How can I get that footlock? How can I pass so-and-so's guard? How can I take so-and-so down? These are the things I'm thinking about. The fact that I make money from it is a consequence. It was never a goal. And I like to keep it like that. I like. I think that's the, the 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 way it should be. It's a consequence. It's not all about business, like some people say. Business is a side effect because we have to live. And I think that what the Grace University has done is is just 
revert, you just reverted that mentality. Like business, making money became the primary concern. Like, oh, we're spreading jujitsu. Like, no, that's not what you're doing. They know that's not what they're doing. They're fully aware of it. They're not dumb. They know what they're doing. It's about money and they're making lots of it. And they don't care. They're laughing their way all the way to the bank. He probably read that article and went, ha, 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 I have more money than you. That's probably, that was probably his reaction. And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure you do, but I'll still kick your butt. And I'm still more, <laughs> I'm still more true to jujitsu than you are. So to me, that means far more than having money. Like if I want to make money, I wouldn't be doing jujitsu in the first place. I'd be at Wall Street. I'd be, a, <laughs> I'd be doing something else. I wouldn't be doing jujitsu. I, ju- I love it. And I, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to make something out of it, it's because, you know, I'm, you know, it's because I, I'm truly passionate about what I do. Uh, I don't think Helio Gracie would approve of it. I don't think he would approve of it for a second because actually I can almost say, almost with certainty, I can say that he wouldn't approve it because I remember when I started training and I mentioned this in the article uh, that I wrote and Helio Gracie wore a blue belt as a protest and I never understood why. If you guys Google it, Helio Gracie images, blue belt, like it's going to come up. And he was wearing a blue, for years he wore a blue belt. He wouldn't wear a red belt. And I couldn't understand why. And I find someone told me, like, it's, it's in protest because people are getting promoted too easily. He thinks that the standards are being degraded. The standards are not being elevated like they should. They're being degraded as, as a protest, everyone being handed a belt. Helio wore a blue belt, right? So one of the, the founding fathers of Brazilian jiu-jitsu is, is wearing a blue belt in protest. And then he have his very grandchildren using his image to me what's so insulting is that they use his image to make money like they are they inherited that that legacy like they are continuing the gracie legacy no you're embarrassing your grandfather he'll be ashamed of you like no of course he would you're handing bells to people you don't even know like there's no way he would have stood for that again it's ironic that the entire gracie family agrees with me like you know it's not me the entire just everyone agrees with me the only people who don't disagree with me are the people who are making money from it you know, so, you know, it, it boggles me that people will be so naive as to thinking that that's a good idea or that he's overall doing a good thing. And I just, I, I, I can't hear the, I hear the arguments and they're just like, I, they make no sense to me. Like, how can you justify such a thing, you know, and use Helio's image? And they waited for him to die. It's not a coincidence. I've said it before. It's not a coincidence, you know, that you wait for the guy that you know he wouldn't have supported it. So as soon as he dies, we're talking months later. We're not talking years later. We're talking months after Helio died, they started this program you know, and of promoting people online. And I think it's, it's an embarrassment. And they know it. Deep inside, they know it. They know what they're doing is wrong. They're, just too, they're making too much money to care. And that's what, it's, that, that's what it comes down to. What do you think the single most important lesson that you personally have learned from jiu-jitsu? And if a person taught you that lesson, who was that person? It's a tough one, man. I learned so much from so many instructors I had. I didn't have, like, I never really looked up to any fighter other than in the most technical sense of the term. Uh, like the different structures I had taught me different lessons. Like Steve De Silva was a guy who really supported me. Like he believed in me when I think my mother was the first one. He believed in me from the very beginning. Um, Steve De Silva believed in me as a white belt. When no one else did, he he let me live with him for a while. He gave me thousands of free privates, and he believed in me from the beginning. That's very meaningful, and it's a lesson. And I carry that with me because whenever I see someone who I believe has potential, I try to help him any way I can. So if there's someone that comes to the gym and I feel that it's my way of giving back, it's trying to help them the same way I was helped. I was helped by my mother. I was helped by Steve Da Silva. When I see someone that loves jiu-jitsu and, 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 and they, they're reaching out, like I always like I go out of my way to help that person because I feel like it's my way of giving back because I was, I was helped at one point in my life. And, you know, Paulo Strecker really enforced competition in us and he was such a great coach, man. Like he, he would drive us. Like sometimes, like there's, sometimes we drive for 24 hours to go to a tournament. 
and he would go. He didn't get paid. He just did it because he just loved coaching us, and he was such a great guy. And I learned so much training with him because it was such a happy. It was probably the happiest time of my life, man. Purple belt driving for eight, nine hours for one competition, not getting paid. You're just going, just spinning everything you have just for one competition, and just like being in the van with my friends, having a good time. Call it the, the golden age, man. The best time of my life. I, I, when I'm, I think when I'm 67, I look back and I remember those years as the best ones in my life. Um, and then obviously Leo Vieira, jiu-jitsu genius, terry amazing coach, man, amazing coach. What a good coach he was. I learned a little bit from everyone, and I try to, I try to, you know, like I said, pick a little bit, of, you know, and deliver some of these lessons to my students. And yeah, it's it's, it's an amazing journey, man. I think that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, man. It was a pleasure. So I had so much fun as, as a student of jiu-jitsu history and somebody that's passionate about the art conducting that interview. I want to thank Robert Drysdale for giving the interview and to Cody Malte from Elevate MMA for arranging it. My only regret was that I didn't have more time to ask Rob about some of the some of the some of the things to expand upon uh, to expand upon some of the stuff that he talked about. You may notice if you've been following martial arts for a while that we didn't ask him some of the most common questions that he gets asked. Uh, things about his competition career in terms of beating Marcelo Garcia, one of the best of all time, about his battles with Hodger Gracie, who you heard him talk about that is arguably the best of all time. Those two guys are often named as one, too. If you're new to jiu-jitsu or, or MMA and you aren't as familiar with Robert Drysdale's career, we're going to post some of those great moments on Facebook in the Facebook thread where we post a link to the show. So if you want to catch up on your Robert Drysdale, you can check out such things as his 2007 uh, Abu Dhabi absolute final match with Marcelo Garcia, where he submits maybe the greatest grappler of all time. You can check out uh, him battling Hodger Gracie in three state world finals, including one where Hodger memorably uh, uses his powerful grips to tear Robert's gi, which is crazy. And, you know, we, we'll also post that open letter, the article that he wrote to Henner Gracie that we referenced. Some of you might remember some local guys, including Jake Whitfield, uh, being some of the first to levy those criticisms. And uh, anyway, you heard Rob talk about his feelings on the matter. He also had an article that we will post in the thread that you can check out. So that's the show for today. You can always catch the replay at whoopfm.org or on iTunes or Stitcher, where you can and should subscribe. If you like the show, please leave us a review. We also put the show up on SoundCloud as well. If you want to let us know what you thought of the show, we're on Twitter and Instagram at CagesideWHUP, and our email is CagesideWhoop at gmail.com. One more time, folks, if you're not doing anything May 1st, uh, you should come to the Concussion Cast Carnival. It's going to be a great community event where you're going to see amazing super fights. You're going to be able to watch people uh, at the. You're going to learn things from people like Daniel Frank, thing, people like Seth Champ, Kim Rice, and Shayla too. Going to eat some great food, have a great day. So if you're not doing anything, please make plans to come out to that. If you are doing something, cancel those plans. If you're in prison, break out and come to the Concussion Cast Carnival. I want to thank Trevor Hayes and James Quigg for calling in, and I want to thank most of all you, the listener. I am Jeff Shaw, and we will see you once again next week.